Welcome back to Sunday Dive. Thanks for tuning in once more. We've got, um, I'm calling it a mega episode today because um, it's like got a positive aspect to it, but maybe like a slightly negative aspect to some people because what I'm going to do, we are diving this week into taking a segue, a break from our year B reading through the gospel of Mark and we are diving into John. So I mentioned that last on our last episode during year B, when in Mark's gospel, we get to the point of the multiplication of loaves and fishes, we actually take a transition into John. Now you remember from the lectionary, year A, we read Matthew, year B, we read Mark, year C, we read Luke. John does not have his own year. He just gets like a smattering of treatment here and there. And so here kind of in the middle or the like two thirds through year B, we focus several Sundays on John chapter six. And that is where we find ourselves today for the 17th Sunday in Ordinary Time year B. Now from the 17th Sunday through to the 21st Sunday, we are going to be reading from John chapter six. Now for that reason, um, and not because John six can't handle that many episodes, but for that reason, I'm going to take this opportunity to just give you a mega episode today on John chapter six, and then take a little break for a few weeks from the podcast. I know I know if I had a producer, this is where he would insert like crying sounds or something. But um, it's good for me to have little breaks here and there. And summertime is a nice time to do that. Um, And I've got some vacations coming up. Not that I haven't been on vacation already, but um, I haven't missed an episode though. So you all are lucky. I've been working around my vacations. Uh, However, you are are lucky because August 15th, which is the solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, lands on a Sunday this year. And so it actually interrupts our reading through John 6. And so you are blessed and lucky because I will bring you a new episode for the readings for August 15th, the Solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, But suffice it to say that uh, our episode today is going to try to, as best we can in the limited time we have, give you a good solid treatment of John 6 to carry you through the next uh, several weeks of our reading through John chapter six, okay? So um, the church is gonna have us read from John six verses one through 69 over the next several weeks. Because of the assumption, we're gonna end up skipping the reading, which um, would encompass verses 52 through 59, which is a little bit of a bummer because Um, That's the section where we get Jesus speaking most emphatically about the Eucharist, but I'm sure our, our priests, our parish priests will still preach on that, even if we're not um, reading it that Sunday. And John 
chapter six, verses one through 69 can be broken up roughly into three sections. So we begin with the the story of the multiplication of loaves and fishes at the beginning of John six. Then we move into um, the what I call the theophany at sea. This is Jesus walking on the water. Um, and the disciples encountering him walking on the water. And then from there, we move into um, what scholars will call the bread of life discourse. And Jesus preaches this discourse at the um, synagogue in Capernaum, actually. So if you have been to the Holy Land and you have visited Capernaum, which if you've been to the Holy Land, you've likely visited Capernaum. Although I suppose if you went a long, long time ago, perhaps the site was not opened yet, but I feel like it's been open for for a pretty solid few decades here, like since the 80s or 90s. Anyways, I digress. Um, you would see the remains of the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, um, the remains that are most visible are not actually first century remains, but if you get really close to the remains and you look near the foundation, you'll see the um, the the black basalt stone that is really typical for that area, and that is the uh, those black basalt stones are from the original first century synagogue at Capernaum. So. We can get a real feeling there um, for for uh, our Lord, in the sense that we know those those bricks, those stones. Um, this is such a powerful thing to think about. Those stones literally heard the voice of the of of our Lord. Um, um, so those stones are blessed, are they not? Uh, and so are we because um, we hear the voice of the Lord as well. And so with that in mind, that's a beautiful transition to um, we can uh, we can read our uh, our gospel. And usually I say we read our gospel for the day, but again, I am I'm gonna disregard um, the the readings for each of the particular Sundays, like the 17th, the 18th, the 19th, et cetera. And I'm just gonna break up our gospel roughly into these three sections, but they're rather large. So at various points, I might stop and interrupt myself and I'm confident I can bring you uh, something intelligible. However, I've never <laughs> tried in a single podcast episode, episode to tackle this much. So if I sound a little scattered, know that it is um, it is out of, probably out of excitement because there's a lot of beautiful stuff in our gospel here. So let's begin by reading John chapter six, verses one and following. I don't know where we're going to stop. We're just going to see where we end up, okay? And as usual, reading from the Revised Standard Version. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a multitude followed him because they saw the signs which he did on those who were deceased. Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a multitude was coming to him, Jesus said to Philip, how are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? This he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. 
Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign which he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So that's stopping at uh, at verse 15. Let's take a look at, at this. The, the first kind of pericope, you might say, of John chapter six, the multiplication of loaves and fishes. So um, he's being followed by a multitude, but we're told that he's followed because of the signs that he has done. And there's a sense that um, those who follow Jesus have varying levels of commitment to him. And as we continue reading through John chapter six, we're gonna discover that uh, evidently many of the people following him in this section of our gospel um, don't have much commitment at all, especially those who follow him after the multiplication of loaves and fishes, because our Lord himself is going to critique them and say, now you're just coming after me because you want more free food, basically, right? Father Francis Martin, who wrote a commentary on uh, the gospel of John, that is uh, kind of my go-to commentary, said this, quote, the gospel has shown that those who come to Jesus on account of his miracles often possess a shallow interest in him because they see him only as a wonder worker, end quote. So we're beginning to see this here. But nevertheless, Jesus is going to continue with his intentions. And it appears here in John chapter six, that he um, is intentionally working certain deeds. So for example, the multiplication and then the theophany at sea in order to prepare both the crowds and the disciples for his great sermon, um, which he's going to preach at the synagogue in Capernaum. Okay. So Jesus goes up on a mountain and there he sits down with his disciples. Now, this is significant to begin with because when um, we see anyone going up a mountain, we imagine that something important is probably going to happen. Why? Because important things in scripture most often happen on mountains. For the Jewish people, the most important thing that happened on a mountain and the thing that going up on a mountain would hearken to is uh, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. So immediately in John chapter six, Jesus is associating himself with Moses who went up to Mount Sinai and received the law. This is not accidental, but I won't get too ahead of myself. In addition to going up the mountain, Jesus sits down on the mountain, okay? This is also significant because it's a sign of authority. Um, when we see um, people having authority in our culture, at least uh, democratic American culture, we often see them standing to kind of assert their authority. This was not the case in uh, first century um, Palestinian Jewish culture. When you wanted to show your authority, you would sit. And in fact, in other cultures um, and in other forms of government, we see sitting as the sign of authority. So for example, you know, when Queen Elizabeth was coronated, the kind of climactic moment is when she actually 
sits down on the throne, okay? And, um, you know, for example, if you've ever been to the ordination of a new bishop, the climax of the ordination is when he sits down on his cathedra, his chair. Um, So there's holdovers of that kind of cultural connotation, but not necessarily in our face as much in American kind of democratic culture. But nevertheless, Jesus goes up on the mountain and he sits. Um, Interesting little side note, um, and I probably have to make this my only side note because I don't have a lot of time if we're going to keep this to a a normal episode. When I was really young, I had a really uh, profound dream about Jesus. I was like nine years old. And um, in this dream, there was a throng of people outside my house and Jesus was teaching them. And I remember for years and years and years when I was young and I would think back on this dream, I would be so perplexed because in my dream, Jesus was sitting when he was teaching the crowds. And I was like, that just doesn't conform to my ideas. Well, fast forward a few years and I'm sitting in a Bible class in um, undergraduate studies. And the professor is talking about exactly what we're talking about right now. And he says, when Jesus taught and when Jesus acted in authority, he did not stand. He sat in conformity with the practices of the culture at that time. My mind was just blown because I was like, all right, this dream did not come from my subconscious uh, because this dream did not conform to my own ideas about who, who Jesus would be, right? So Jesus sits as a sign of authority, um, especially when he is teaching and doing um, mighty works because um, being uh, in the sitting position is a sign of authority. John goes on to tell us at verse four that it was Passover. It was Passover, okay? Why is this significant? Well, if Jesus has already connected himself with authority and with the authority of a specific person that is Moses, now he's connecting um, this whole Uh, this whole scene with not only authority, with not only Mosaic authority, but also with Passover, okay? And this starts to give us a clue as to why Jesus wants to associate himself with Moses. It has something to do with the Passover, okay? But again, we won't get too ahead of ourselves. So he lifts up his eyes, he sees the multitude, and he says to Philip, who knows why he singles out Philip, um, how are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Philip, um, I I don't want to really offer a critique of Philip because I know I would answer the Lord in the same way, especially because, um, you know, I mean, that is kind of what Jesus is asking. How are we to buy bread for all these people? That's a little bit of a rhetorical question probably, but Philip gives us the um, kind of gravity in some ways of the situation by his answer. 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Now, a denarius is a single day's wages. So let's translate this into our terms just for us to kind of fully understand, again, the gravity of the situation. So uh, a denarius is a single day's wages. Philip is proposing that 200 days wages would be needed to simply buy bread and actually not even enough bread for everybody to get just a little bit of bread. Now there's 365 days in a year. 
um, 200, let's just, let's just be really rough and say 200 days is about, I don't know, like two thirds of a year, really rough estimates here. And then, um, uh, let's, let's say an average being conservative, an average person makes about $30,000 in a year. Two thirds of that, we're looking at 20 grand. So Philip is essentially saying 20 grand would not buy these people even a little bit to eat. So there's a lot of people. And John is going to tell us in a few verses that there's 5,000. And most commentators on these scriptures will point out to you that he says 5,000 men. So they will believe that he is not uh, talking about women or children here. So we have a large amount of people. Andrew pipes up. He says, there's a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Uh, So again, there's a, a tentative sort of answering to Jesus's question. Philip is like, nah, we don't have enough money to to buy food for all these people. Andrew's like, there's a tiny bit of food over here, but I really don't know what that's going to do for us. All Jesus needs is a little tiny little bit of something, right? Just, just give, give, give the Lord an inch and he'll take a yard, but in like a beautiful, beautiful sort of way, right? So that's the key that unlocks everything here. Five barley loaves and two fish. Jesus answers, make the people sit down. (laughs) This is fantastic. This is like out of a movie script, right? Um, There's a boy with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they going to do for us? Jesus kind of looks over and it's like, make the people sit down. Something good's coming. Something good is in my future. There was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Some people will translate Jesus's instructions, make the people recline, make the people recline. That coupled with the description that there was much grass in that place immediately reminds people who are familiar with the scriptures of Psalm 23, okay? Psalm 23 verse two says, in green pastures, he makes me lie down. Not not much earlier in our reading, not of John, but of Mark, but not much earlier in our, our journey through the lectionary here, our journey through the gospels, we had Jesus uh, um, identifying himself as the good shepherd um, and uh, speaking judgment on bad shepherds. Okay. So it's really fascinating that we then have here um, Jesus alluding to uh, arguably Psalm 23, um, making the people to lie down in green pastures. Another connection to the Old Testament that we have here are the loaves themselves. Okay. Um, Pretty much anytime we get specific details in scripture, they have some logic behind them. So the scriptures here tell us that there weren't just five loaves, but rather five barley loaves. What might be going on here? Well, again, someone familiar with the Old Testament would remember back to 2 Kings chapter 4, specifically verses 42 through 44, where Elisha feeds over a hundred men with 20 barley loaves. Okay. 
So Jesus is showing himself to be here a kind of new Elisha, right? By performing this miracle or preparing to perform this miracle of uh, the multiplication of loaves and fishes with even arguably even less than Elisha had. And yet he's going to feed exponentially more than Elisha himself fed. Okay, beautiful, beautiful things going on. Here, Jesus takes the loaves, he gives thanks, and he distributes them. The sequence of verbs, taking, giving thanks, and giving is very, very similar to the series of verbs we get during the Last Supper of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus will take, bless, break, and give. And here we have much the same formula going on. And so it appears that Jesus is kind of setting the stage for an allusion to the Eucharist, which makes sense because everything here in the multiplication and then again in the theophany is a preparation for this preeminent catechesis that Jesus is going to do in the synagogue in Capernaum on the Eucharist, all right? So it makes sense that Jesus is making here a very subtle connection to what has not yet happened, but what will happen and what is in many ways the heart of Jesus's work, the Eucharist. This is a this is an important point for us to take a moment to kind of um, back up and consider. You know, when we speak of, when we speak of, um, the most important words that Jesus utters in the scriptures, his most famous sermons, et cetera, et cetera. Like so often we think of the Sermon on the Mount, for example, or we think of the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the Beatitudes. I don't want to dismiss any of those ideas, but when you look at, and we've been doing this over the last several weeks, when you look at how Jesus preaches, most often in parables and in subtle hidden language, When you get to John 6 and you get to Jesus speaking in the synagogue in Capernaum, preaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, you see in many ways an entirely different Jesus. Not in the sense that it's contradictory, but in the sense that he has chosen in this moment to tear away the parables, to tear away the subtlety, to tear away the analogy and to just give us what we need to know, how we need to know it. And this is something we should be deeply grateful for. And I think for us, it shows in a subtle way. I think for us, it shows in a subtle way that this topic is deeply, deeply important to our Lord. And again, we can fast forward to the Last Supper where Jesus says, I have longed to celebrate this Passover with you. Again, these are in the context of the scriptures, in the context of the gospels and what what is reiterated over and over again as the heart of Jesus's message, the most important words he utters, the things most important to him, the ideas most important to him. The Eucharist is often kind of glossed over. Even if, for example, we are good pious Catholics, and we understand that the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. We're Eucharistic-minded people. 
let's say we go to mass regularly, even daily mass, we take part in Eucharistic adoration, we may still gloss over the fact that the scriptures confirm for us, the gospels confirm for us that this Eucharist is at the heart of Jesus's message and literally is at his heart, like it's on his heart. It's in the center of his heart. It's what he wants. I have longed to celebrate this Passover with you. Okay, let's continue reading. So he has them, uh, he, he says, make the people sit down. And he takes the loaves, gives thanks, distributes them and also the fish. And we're told as much as they wanted. This is in contrast to Philip's reply to Jesus that um, 200 denarii would not buy enough uh, for each of them to have even a little. Jesus takes this tiny amount, multiplies it so that um, not only does everybody get like a good um, uh, portion um, in light of like a 2000 calorie diet, right? No, they have as much as they want, which uh, I think implies seconds, thirds, if you're like me, you know, I really like to eat. Um, as much as they wanted. Jesus is a God of overabundance. We see this at the very beginning of John's gospel where he um, he uh, turns water into wine and just like, you know, a dozen bottles. No, like, 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 not even five, I was going to say five gallon buckets full, but that's not even like barrels, basically barrels, like multiple barrels of, of wine. Um, our God is a God of overabundance. We need to keep this in mind when we have a temptation to think that he's a stingy God. He's really not. I mean, sometimes we feel like he's stingy with us, but he's very, very generous. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments of left over, that nothing may be lost, that nothing may be lost. I said at the beginning of our section here that Jesus is associating himself with Moses, and there's a particular reason for that. I think here we get the connection. Gather up the fragments left over, that nothing may be lost. First of all, as we've been reading through this section, we should be reminded of the Old Testament connotations, overtones of the manna in the desert, okay? The, the Jewish people, the Israelites are freed from their um, oppression in Egypt, but they're in the desert and they have nothing to eat. So God in his mercy literally rains down, if you will, bread upon the earth that they can gather and eat. Now, interestingly enough, if you remember back to the Old Testament scriptures, um, for example, you can go to Exodus 16 to read about this. Uh, the Israelites were only permitted to gather what they would eat in a day. So what would happen is if they gathered more than a day's worth of manna, that manna would like rot and mold, really gross. Um, But it meant, the idea is that it required the Israelites to have faith that the manna would come the next day and the next day and the next day. But there was one day when uh, the Israelites were allowed to gather a double portion And what is that day? That was um, Friday, the day before the Sabbath. Why? Because they would not gather on the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath, they would um, gather a double portion, all right? And so if Jesus is associating himself with Moses and he's raining down a new manna upon the earth, and interestingly enough, 
some of the rabbis said that when the Messiah comes, the manna will be reinstituted. Fascinating, right? So Jesus is the new Moses. He's raining the new manna down upon uh, the people here in this, this one-time occasion with the multiplication of loaves and fishes. They're told to gather the fragments left over. And this in light of Exodus 16 reminds us of the gathering that took place on the Friday before the Sabbath. What does this imply? I believe that this implies that Jesus is subtly saying, not only am I going to feed you during your new Exodus, which he has been uh, kind of instituting or beginning over the last few gospels, but he's also subtly saying that the new Sabbath is at hand and the Sabbath is eternal because they're going to gather up all the fragments left over. And there's a lot of them, 12 baskets full. So Jesus is not only saying that the, the new Sabbath is right around the corner, but I would argue that he's also alluding to the nature of this new Sabbath, which is it is one that is eternal. It is eternal, right? And this makes total sense in light of what the new Exodus is and then what the new Sabbath is, the new rest is, right? It's a rest in God himself in the beatific vision. Gather up the fragments left over that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Why 12? Because of the 12 tribes who will be fed in the new Exodus by the 12 apostles, right? When the people saw the sign which he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself, all right? Now, you would think that this is exactly the effect that Jesus is going for. Finally, they recognize that I am the true king over them. Well, mm, for one, who knows what their intentions are because um, perhaps they just want free food, right? I mean, who wouldn't? And if the, if the bread and the fish were as good as the wine was, this was probably a pretty great meal and, and no surprise, right? Jesus is not going to be outdone in his culinary exploits. <laughs> But uh, so, so they probably don't have the best intentions in mind, but also this is not the time for Jesus to be crowned king. I'm going to pause there and back up just a second to try to offer another explanation for why they may have wanted to make him king. And John alludes to this. He quotes them saying, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. What is this a reference to? This is indeed another reference to the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15, where Moses himself said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. And so there was this idea that at some point, a prophet like Moses was going to come into the midst of the people. What does this mean? This means to me that the people are, are getting the argument that I myself am making that Jesus is making himself out to be a new Moses. And this is indeed what the people see him doing 
This is why they call him the prophet and then and then try to make him king, right? But Jesus resists being made king. Why? Because his kingship is not a kingship of the world. It's not a kingship like they desire necessarily, at least on the surface. And it's certainly not a kingship that they may be expecting. Why does Jesus prevent them? Um, because our Lord is going to mount a throne indeed, but his throne is not uh, the throne to be expected. Our Lord is going to mount the throne of the cross, right? And hopefully I can remember this point in a few verses, but uh, we're going to come back to this idea in a second here when we get to the bread of life discourse. But in the meantime, with like uh, 15, 20 minutes left, we're going to try to talk about the theophany on, on the sea and then uh, dive into the bread of life discourse, which full disclosure, I'm not going to talk a ton about the bread of life discourse in part because it's pretty self-explanatory. This is one of these sections of scripture where because Jesus is not speaking in veiled language, because he's not speaking mysteriously, because he's not speaking in parables, it's really fruitful to just read it and take it at face value. I mean, we should always do that with the parables and stuff. And uh, may the Lord forbid that you should ever feel that you need my voice to glean um, something fruitful from the reading of scripture. Um, the Holy Spirit is what brings about fruitful reading of scripture. Um, so there's also there's also a, a sense in which it's a good practice for me to withdraw into the background at times and allow you and the Holy Spirit to read the scriptures together. Okay, so Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pick up at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So they're traveling from Tiberias back to Capernaum. Um, Tiberias is on the Western side of the Sea of Galilee. It's more towards the South though. Capernaum is like at the very top of the Sea of Galilee on what you might call the North Shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, sometimes I wonder if uh, if they had good surfing up there, like the other North Shore in Hawaii. Probably not, but anyways. It always sounds really cool to say that like St. Peter was from the North Shore of the Sea of Galilee because I always think of people who are from uh, the North Shore. Uh, I think it's the North Shore of Oahu. Like there's all these famous surfers from the North Shore. Anyways, so uh, they travel from Tiberias back to Capernaum. Jesus evidently does not go with them. It's dark out and there's a storm that comes upon the sea. There's a strong wind blowing. Um, it's evidently strong enough that they don't have the sails out, which is not uncommon in, in a storm, right? So they don't have the sails out. So they're rowing and they've been rowing about three or four miles, according to our gospel. In the midst of their rowing, all of a sudden they see Jesus walking on the sea and walking towards them in the boat. It says they are frightened. They're frightened. Jesus speaks to them and says, it is I, do not be afraid. And then we're told this fascinating thing where they take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at land. Like it, it, he, they take him into the boat and like immediately they arrive at where they're supposed to be. So I'm not the only one that calls this a theophany at sea. Um, many biblical scholars will call this a theophany at sea. Why do they specifically call this 
section of scripture, this, uh, this episode, a theophany, because it's uh, so a theophany, right? It's a, a revelation of God, God making himself known. This is one of the sections in scripture where if you dive into the details and you can do this with a good biblical scholar by your side, by reading a good biblical commentary, they will point out to you how these, this is one of the episodes where Jesus is really just showing forth who he is. For example, the transfiguration is another instance of this. So let's peel back some of the layers and look at some of the details that really make it so we can classify this section as a theophany, as Jesus revealing himself clearly as God, okay? Um, Francis Martin, Father Francis Martin, who wrote this commentary on John that I often consult, gives us um, three reasons for why we can see this episode as a clear theophany, Jesus showing himself to be clearly divine. The first reason he gives is the reaction of the apostles. We're told that they were frightened, there's a sense in which they're frightened um, out of a magnificence that they are beholding, right? Um, it's not unusual in the gospels for us to read about people being frightened. When do we most often read about people being frightened? When they have a very real encounter with the divine, right? So like most often when an angel appears to someone in scripture, what is the first thing they say? Don't be afraid. Because when our when our humanity is faced with divinity, even um, even angelic manifestations where the angel is not divine but is yet um, above nature, in some ways supernatural, right? Because they are are uh, mere uh, spirits; they're simple spirits. We react with fear. Okay. So for us to see the disciples reacting with fear, we glean the sense that they're seeing Jesus showing forth his divinity. And then of course, how does he respond? Don't be afraid. But right before he says, don't be afraid, he says something really fascinating, which for Father Francis Martin is the second reason why we can classify this section as a theophany. The RSV translates Jesus saying, it is I. But you can translate that, you can translate that even more simply to just read, I am, I am. And so there's uh, near unanimous consensus that what Jesus is saying here, what he is um, placing on his lips, the word that he, the words that he's calling to his lips are none other than the divine name, okay? I am Yahweh, I am who am. So Jesus is also, anytime our Lord uses the divine name, he's clearly referring to himself as the eternal God of the universe, right? So they're frightened. He says to them, I am, do not be afraid. And then um, we're told by uh, Father Francis Martin that the, the third kind of aspect that lends this idea of this being a clear theophany is a detail that we already touched on, but it's a detail kind of at the heart of the the whole gospel section, the fact of Jesus walking on the water. So Father Francis Martin will point to uh, Job chapter nine, specifically nine, chapter nine, verse eight, where the scriptures tell us that God alone um, walks on the sea. This is a beautiful section of scripture. I love the book of Job. 
Um, if you are in a place of suffering, you should read the book of Job, right? So Job, the book of Job is full of these kind of like uh, soliloquies about the nature of God. And typically Job is, is speaking this way uh, because he wants to remind himself who God is and that God is good God, even though he's feeling this intense suffering. But sometimes Job also goes on these soliloquies about who God is and his almightiness. I think because he needs to remind his lowly self, and he knows this, he knows that he needs to remind his lowly self that he needs to respect God. And this is this is a good double kind of attitude to have towards God in times of suffering, uh, to remind us who God is for this twofold reason. One, to um, lean on the fact that God is good and he will bring good out of every evil. But two, at an even more basic um, respect, to understand that uh, God is one who requires uh, respect. Um, There's times in um, the book of Job where Job's friends are telling him, like, you might as well just curse God and die because your life is terrible. And Job basically is like, I ain't cursing God man, God made the stars and the sky and the heavens and I am a little peon and I will not be doing that. And this is kind of one of those sections. Uh, We'll read some of this um, here, chapter nine, to get an idea leading up to verse eight of the beautiful soliloquy that Job is unveiling for us on who God is. And then Jesus himself is kind of Um, taking this description upon him when he walks on the water. Job chapter nine, verse two and following. Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be just before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it, not when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Um, scholars will make the argument that the, in the Septuagint translation of Job chapter nine, so the Greek translation of it, we read um, who walked on the waves of the sea, all right? So there's something um, specific going on here. There's not like, um, there's not just an arbitrariness. And if we dive into it and again, compare our situation with what we've been reading in the gospels, we discover that this miracle is unlike other miracles that Jesus performs. Like in some ways, it could be argued that um, Jesus is just doing something a little bit flashy here. Um, and he's certainly not doing that, at least not out of pride, because he is perfectly humble. But yet he is taking a moment to remind the disciples who he is. And he's is he doing that to put them in his place? No. I would argue, and other biblical scholars will argue as well, that our Lord is doing this at this particular time and place and moment in order to prepare them, much like he does in the transfiguration, to prepare them for this 
gospel he's going to preach, or it is a gospel, but the sermon he's going to preach at the synagogue in Capernaum, where he's going to make a marvelous declaration. He's going to say, my flesh is food and my blood is drink. And people are going to leave him. And so our Lord is bolstering the faith of his disciples. And he's saying something really fascinating. He's saying that he is the Lord of nature, that he can bend the laws of nature. Why? Because he wrote the laws of nature. And we saw this as well in the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, right? Five barley loaves do not equal 5,000 barley loaves. And yet, when the God who wrote the laws of nature bends the laws of nature for the sake of good, five barley loaves equal 5,000 barley loaves. And so here we are dealing with God the God who shakes the earth out of its place, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who can seal up the stars and who alone stretched out the heavens. This is the God we're dealing with. And it's the God who in his humility and great love for us is going to, to declare to the murmurings of his, his audience, to the murmurings of the crowd, he's going to declare, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Let's continue on coming to the bread of life discourse. On the next day, the people who remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. However, boats from Tiberias came near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given them thanks. So when the people saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered him, answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him has God the father set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the father gives me will come to me and him who comes to me, I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him at the last day. Then the Jews murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? 
Jesus answered them, do not murmur amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except him who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending where he was set before? It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who those, who those were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Wow, again, this is why I said, I'm gonna offer a few points of commentary on this, but this is something to be read and meditated on your own, um, especially right before the Blessed Sacrament. So I'm gonna try not to get in the Lord's way, um, but I will offer a couple points of commentary here. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And this is the first time in John's gospel that we get um, what scholars will call the I am predicate. It's gonna happen seven times total in John's gospel where Jesus is gonna say, I am the light of the world. Um, I am the way, the truth and the life, right? But the first thing he says, the first I am predicate he uses is here at John 6, I am the bread of life. Again, we see the importance of this idea of the Eucharist for Jesus. The Eucharist is on his heart. Our Lord says, um, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood shall not hunger or thirst, right? A clear allusion to Isaiah 49 verse 10, which prophesies that in the age to come, they shall not hunger or thirst. 
So what is that in the age to come that's going to quench our hunger and our thirst? It is indeed the Eucharist. Interestingly enough, Jesus makes this fascinating statement at one point where he says, I will not reject anyone who comes to me. And this Greek verb translated reject, we've heard several times actually in Mark's gospel, ekbalo. Usually it's used during an exorcism, right? Or sometimes when Jesus heals someone, when he commands illness to leave someone, that Greek verb ekbalo is used. Um, It's a strong verb, but interestingly enough, it's also used at Genesis chapter three, verse 24 in the Septuagint translation of Genesis 3.24, when it speaks of Adam being cast out of the garden. And so we've been getting allusions from our gospel here of John 6 to the Old Testament and to um, the era of Moses. But it's also really fascinating to compare the Eucharist not only to like the manna, but to compare the Eucharist to the tree of life, to situate our reading of the bread of life discourse, not only just on Mount Sinai, but also at Eden, which itself was a mountain. And so if Jesus will not ekbalo anyone who comes to him, we have a kind of undoing of Adam and Eve that had been cast out, a regathering. And if Adam and Eve were cast out initially because of what they ate, the regathering is going to take place again around a food. And this is the food of Jesus's body and his blood. I alluded to how our Lord did not want to be crowned king after he multiplied the loaves and the fishes because it just was not his time and his way. At some point he's going to be crowned king, but his crown is not a crown you would expect. It's a crown of thorns. And his throne is not a throne that you would expect. It's the throne of the cross. And that cross is a new tree. That cross is the tree of life from which Adam and Eve were cast out. They were ekbalod away from the tree of life. But in the, the new age instituted by our Lord, he's going to regather us in a new garden. Jesus himself was crucified in a garden. He's going to regather us in a new garden around a new tree from which hangs a new fruit, which is his very body. And so the image of Jesus on the cross is in many ways synonymous with the image of Jesus on the altar. And it is that bread that we receive at every mass, which is not bread, even though it has the appearance of bread. It's that flesh, which is the new fruit of the true tree of life. Jesus himself hanging upon the cross. Some people will hear this and will believe and their belief and their reception will bring forth beautiful fruits in their lives. We can make the argument that the grace that filled and animated the lives of every single saint is a grace that flowed from the Eucharist. But there are others who reject this idea. In fact, we're told that the people who initially hear this murmur at Jesus. This is the same language that we get, for example, at Exodus 17 and Numbers 14, when the people of Israel murmur at Moses because they don't have food. Here, Jesus is offering to feed his children and yet people murmur against him. 
And not only that, but disciples that had followed him up to now choose to leave him. They choose to leave him. Now, many people, I believe, who are probably listening to this podcast, believe in the reality of the Eucharist. And they take part in the Eucharist on a regular basis. And so we can ask ourselves, how can we allow this gospel to challenge us further? How can we allow this gospel to to, um, draw us closer? Again, this is kind of where I have to step away because I don't want to get in the way of the Holy Spirit who speaks so profoundly through the gospels in general, but in a special way through John chapter six. But I will offer uh, a few suggestions. Try to get to mass more often. If you go to mass every Sunday, God bless you. But Jesus offers himself every single day, multiple hours a day, because he desires us that much. He's just sitting upon the altar and sitting in the tabernacle longing for us. St. Jose Maria Escriva has this beautiful, famous quote. um, Jesus has been waiting in the tabernacle for you for 2,000 years. And so try to get to mass even more frequently. This gives great joy to the heart of our Lord. Also try to spend time before him in the blessed sacrament in Eucharistic adoration. This is a very fruitful, fruitful practice. And again, it brings so much joy to the Lord. So often when we think about going to mass or praying before our Lord in the blessed sacrament, we think about what it's gonna do for me. Like I should do that because it'd be good for me. It'd be good for my spiritual life. It'd be good because it'd bring me more peace and serenity. It'll help me be a better mother, father, husband, wife, teacher, doctor, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But rarely do we think it'll make Jesus happy like it'll bring him immense joy. And that really should be the at the heart of our motivation because it's the very heart of his motivation in giving himself to us. Lastly, we can, we can consider a profound thought that was given to us by a saint. I believe it was St. John Biani who said this, if angels would be jealous of anything that humans had, it would be this holy communion. And so in the next few weeks, as we spend time during mass, Uh, traveling, if you will, through John chapter six, I would encourage you to consider this fact that the angels are jealous of us, that we can be so close to God who gives himself to us, saying to us emphatically in our gospel here, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will be in me. And the implication is here that just as Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in the Son, when we receive our Lord in Holy Communion, we dwell in the same Trinitarian communion. Thanks so much for listening. I will see you in a few weeks. In the meantime, stay well. Stay well.